Yesterday in Zurich, the city council erected a statue to James Joyce over his new grave at the Fluntern Cemetery. New since his body was moved earlier this year to lie beside his much-loved Penelope, Nora Barnacle, whose name said his father symbolised steadfastness. Indeed, she sauntered faithfully behind them from the day they first arrived in Zurich in October 1904 until his death there in January 1941. This city had been their refuge and their strength through almost continuous crashes of wills gen wounds, of oystergots gagen fishy gods, and all the bad times of killy, kill, killy from bad 1914 to worse 1941. Though Joyce wrote some of his best work in Zurich, it was work which was totally a mystery to his wife, who hated what she could understand. Writing to her in Ireland in 1922, he said, Your image is always in my heart. How glad I am to hear that you are looking younger. Oh, my dearest, if you could only turn even now and read that terrible book which has now broken the heart in my breast and take me to yourself alone to do with me what you will. When he was dead, she was asked her opinion of André Gide, and she replied, Sure, if you've been married to the greatest writer in the world, you can't remember the little fellows. To the understanding of her infinite fascination for him, photographs are no help, nor are contemporary accounts, since they are subjective. But her wild beauty held Joyce captive, even when he considered women, as he said, no more than a temptation in one's youth. For him, she was Isolt and Kitty O'Shea and Anna-Livia Plurabelle, all the women that men had ever desired. Was she Molly Bloom too? Well, that Nora could answer. I'm not, she said. She was much fatter. In addition to the many ceremonies in Zurich, the unveiling of the statue, a civic lunch and a lecture by John Garvin, and a formal inauguration in the Great Hall of Zurich University, Yesterday saw also celebrations at the Martella Tower at Sandikov, once leased by Oliver St. John Gogarty, now appropriated forever as James Joyce's Tower. The action of Ulysses begins there on the morning of June the 16th, 1904. Pori Collum, friend and exact contemporary of Joyce, describes what he calls the Tower Joyce left to the world. I begin this tower uh, you know, the opening of Ulysses is in uh, a Martello Tower. I say we may be sure that when Joyce decided to begin his Ulysses in a tower along the coast of Ireland, it was not just for the reason that he had been residing there at a poignant time in his life, the time immediately after the death of his mother. We may be sure that he had a feeling for the significance of the place itself. A tower is isolated, not only on the landscape, but in life and history. People don't make homes in towers. Towers are defences, and the writer of the first chapter in Ulysses was aware that he had to build up a defence 
in his own soul. Joyce at that time at Sandy Cove, Joyce and that tower in Sandy Cove are one. I know no place in literature that is so significant as a, of an author as the tower in which Ulysses begins. And as he, as he gave the world the chapter that has Stephen Dedalus, Buck Mulligan, Haynes, the old vendor of milk, so he gave the world the tower at Sandy Cove. On display in the tower now are Joyce's cane, his death mask, the fancy waistcoat which he wore, which had been his father's, and Joyce himself wore it on festive occasions. There are first editions of his works, letters, photographs and portraits. Though he has captured the tower, in fact it was never his. He was merely the guest there of his friend and enemy, Oliver Gogarty. Moreover, though he set the opening of Ulysses there on the 16th of June 1904, there was nobody in residence on that date, since Gogarty's lease was not signed until the following September. Further to complicate the situation, most of the events which Joyce placed in 1904 took place in fact in 1909, when he came back to open the Volta, Dublin's first cinema, at 45 Mary Street. The reason the date was memorable to him was that it was the date of his first appointment with Nora, a day they spent strolling in the unromantic surroundings of Ringsend. It's not only in Zurich and Dublin that Joyce is remembered and celebrated. Wherever scholars are gathered together, there he is in the, in the midst of them, and nowhere more than in the North American University. In a typical outburst of bitterness against his supporters and admirers in the United States, Joyce once complained that, he said, they would bring out a collection of my selected pawn tickets. And though this may have sounded to him like mere shrill invective, there is no doubt that any postgraduate student proffering such a collection of pawn tickets to his professor would promptly earn a distinguished PhD. But Joyce was the author of his own misfortune, if it was misfortune. Moriarty evokes Holmes. The more skillfully hidden the pharaoh, the more cunning and implacable the archaeologist. If Sonny Jim Joyce of Dublin has become the Yam Joyce of international scholarship, he has only himself to blame or to thank. Speaking at a 1962 birthday party in New York, uh, even though the man had been dead for nine years, they had a birthday party. Uh, Mary Manning of Dublin had a nice satiric go at the PhDs. She called her paper Myth Carriage of Joystus. The last ten years have been bumper ones for the fast-growing Joyce industry. I'm told the bibliography now approximates the population explosion. <laughs> the academic miasma which warps and whoops round the great man is thickening year by year. It's almost impossible to beat your way now through the critical smog to the real Joyce, the enjoyable Joyce of the haunted ink bottle, no number, Brimstone Walk, Asia in Ireland. It would seem that the living from hand to grant school has never had it so good, especially with that inexhaustible conundrum Finnegan's Wake, 
the biggest boon to scholarship since Moses struck the rock. <laughs> criticism in this field is no longer criticism. It's vivisection. <laughs> Only you wouldn't do it to a dog. Granted the master encouraged these doings by the willful obscurantism of Finnegan. Granted everything and you have a grant. Still, I feel like throwing up when they start analysing Dubliners to death. Really, I don't care to know that the dead was inspired by a short story by George Moore, or that there was a character called Gabriel Conroy in something by Bret Hart, and so on and so forth, and out of the window with it. Personally, I think it's time Gentle Reader was allowed to walk through Joyce, footnote loose and fancy free. <laughs> Richard Elman writes, The ironic quality of Joyce's fame was that it remained a Loire de Sénac, even when the Sénac had swelled to vast numbers of people. All right, but things had changed. When Joyce was alive, the Sénac consisted of sophisticated literary expatriates and a small vanguard of professors, the Dior's of their profession, who could smell a trend a mile off. Now every university has its own Joyce Sénac, and as the industry grows and the profits rise, the titles of the numerous critical studies become more and more specialised. Here are a few picked out at random. Joyce Among the Jesuits, The Post-War Mind in James Joyce, The Books of the Wake with Index, The Use of Ballads in Finnegan's Wake and Their Sources, A Study of Literary Illusions in Finnegan's Wake, A Census of Finnegan's Wake with Index of Characters and Their Roles, A Shout in the Street, Analysis of the Second Chapter of Ulysses, Analysis of the Mind of James Joyce, the Sacred River, an approach to James Joyce. James Joyce and the Common Reader. And here's one writer, one honest man with a conscience. James Joyce, a partial explanation. Well, Joyce is a bit like the author of the Bible or Shakespeare, as uh, Buck Mulligan says. Ah, yes, Shakespeare, I seem to know the name. The chap who writes like Singh. It is possible to prove almost anything from Joyce's work. Some months ago in Dublin, a Madison Avenue public relations man gave a dreary little talk on James Joyce the Ad Man, or perhaps it should have been James Joyce the Mad Av Man. At the same meeting where Mary Manning was stamping her pretty foot among the doctors, up popped another with as good or as dotty a theory as any. This contribution is by Samuel Rosenberg and is called The Irish Manx. The specific eye cramp or ailment or whatever you want to call it that James Joyce had was called iritis. Now, remembering that Joyce is the great word man and the great haunter of dictionaries, I immediately went to the dictionary. The dictionary was the Oxford Underbridge Dictionary, and this is what I found. I'll give it to you in very rapid order. Iritis is an inflammation of the iris. The iris, of course, is the, little, the membrane that hangs in the eye, which is the pupil of the eye. Well, the next thing to do, of course, was to see what, I, what the dictionary said about iris. Iris, uh, until about the 13th century, was the word for Irish. That is to say, a man was an irisman. This is spelled five different ways in the Oxford uh, unabridged, I-R-I-S or Y-R-I-S-S and many other ways, but they all say iris. So, I think you see the point immediately. Um, James Joyce suffered from an inflammation of the Irish. Well, there you are, scholarship gone mad. Frank O'Connor, himself 
a fine writer, as everybody knows, has given us one of the most perceptive studies of a portrait of the artist as a young man. And here is a portion of his contribution. Because, unlike the other books, it has not been closely studied. And, to tell the truth, I don't think it's been very well understood. I drew attention some time ago to the extraordinary prose that it's written in. A prose of which we saw the beginnings in that passage I read to you from the dead. In this book, Joyce is using a practical vocabulary of probably not more than 200 words. And he's using this in a very peculiar way. Repeating each word again and again whenever it occurs. When he wishes to make a climax in this way, he does it by inversion and repetition, just as happens in the end of the dead. Some of these 200 words, like pass, seem to have a sort of general significance in relation to the movement of the individual through time and space. Others, like touch, hands, fingers, cold, hot, soft, hard, eyes, face, odor, sound, have a purely sensory significance. And this is intended to reinforce the alternations of sensory perceptions that occur through the, the narrative and maintain in our subconscious minds the metaphor of the Aristotelian system of psychology. Joyce has always had a small but enthusiastic following in what he fondly called his native dunghill. The James Joyce Tower Committee, of which I was chairman, restored the tower, roofed it, lit and warmed it, installed a library, and have now thankfully handed it over to the tender, loving care of Board Folta, which carries on where we left off. The tower was formally opened by Miss Sylvia Beach on the day uh, which she had designated as Bloomsday and this was Bloomsday in 1962. I welcomed her with a poem. Sylvia Beach, in 1922, a year of war in Ireland, gave us Joyce, an exile who in Paris lived our life, and through a cunning silence was our voice. He, like the wild geese, fled, and yet retained our speech, our humour, all our songs and ways, remained himself a Dubliner forever, and every day lived out his Dublin days. And yet, without this one courageous woman, indomitable still, who can enjoy our life, our town, Joyce might have waited long, a Ulysses returning late from Troy. Though there is no book on Joyce by an Irish writer, other than the columns, our friend James Joyce, he has never lacked critical appreciation, as well as a great deal of critical deprecation. Among the best of Joyce scholars is John Garvin, who has been unwinding the mummy cloth of Finnegan's Wake for years, but who is only now emerging from the modest pseudonym of Andrew Cass, a Joycean anagram for Cassandra, a prophetess, you may remember, who always spoke the truth, but who was cursed never to be to be believed at the time. Last night at the University of Zurich, John Garvin gave a lecture on a portrait of the artist in Finnegan's Wake, 
And here he is to tell you in part what he said there. The amorphous content of the book, its lack of sequence and its multiplicity of meanings are grounded on ascertained processes of the dreaming mind, including dream image metamorphosis, which enables Joyce to run riot in his favourite technique, multiplying meaning by the use of symbolism, parody, portmanteau words and puns. Another help, a present from Herr Jung, the psychologist of Zurich, was the theory of racial memory surviving in the dreaming mind of an individual. This made all human thought and history relevant and would enable him to epiphanize himself as the all-wisest staggerite of his time. Notwithstanding this universality in theme and treatment, the basic scene is Ireland, and the principal characters are, as I have shown, the city of Dublin, the River Liffey, Joyce himself, and his opposite number at home, probably the personage he thought he would have become if he remained at home. The book is a letter written to Ireland. He would bear to an tired world of Lymon Conolstria, something that sounds like outer space, but it is in fact Leinster, Munster, Connacht and Ulster, the provinces of Ireland. He would use sit it all down a most miraculous Jeremiah sin book for all the peoples. In invoking the assistance of Vico's theory of the repetition of cultural cycles in history and Bruno's theory of conflict, we get in Finnegan's wake a Bildung roman, which is promptly turned into a building, an American skyscraper in course of erection. A well worth of a skyscraper of most eyeful height and towerly, erigenating from next to nothing and celescalating the himmels with Lawrence O'Toolers clittering up and tumbles of buckets cluttering down. This work should be exceptionally well blessed, seeing that there are two saints assisting in the construction, St. Lawrence O'Toole and St. Thomas Becket. Here, as elsewhere, we have numerous pairs of mighty offices, one pair succeeding to or becoming amalgamated with the next, through the labyrinth of their Sammy-likes and the alter ego asses of their pseudo-cells, in that multi-megaron of returning ties, whirled without end to end. The conflict may be racial, after the year 1600, parts of Ireland were planted by the victorious British adventurers. Miscegenations on miscegenations, they lived and laughed and loved and left. For sin, thy kingdom is given to the Medes and Parsons. What clashes here are wills gen wants, what oystery cods gagging fishy gods, what biddy me to loves, seduced by what tigote absolvers. Or the conflicts may be personal or symbolic. Feuds between Shem and Sean, Mutt and Jeff, Stella and Vanessa, nature and artefact, Mrs. Liffey and her husband Dublin, Mick and Nick, or it may be mathematical universalization of the log of Annie to the base all. Meanwhile, the author lifts his head from the far-fetched analogies, oppositions and identifications of his dream world creations. And lo, we see out from Dublin and across the old green plain, Minalty, that stretched from Dublin to the 4,000 years old megalithic tumulus at Newgrange, the calm procession of the seasons. Each returning spring, down come the earth-fresh April floods and up the sea-fresh salmon glide. The flowers bloom alike from the blood of beasts and of men fighting for the new land or of ancient peoples contending for Ireland are like London pride after the bombing from the ashes of our megalopolitan cultures. Joyce gets this point when he parodies another writer, Gine. 
Now after all that far-fetched and peregrine or dignant and clear, lift we our ears, eyes of the darkness from the tome of liber lividus. And to how peaceably or ironical all dimmering dunes and glomering glades self-stretches afore us our freedland's plain. Lean neath stone pine the pastor lies with his crook, young pricket by pricket's sister nibbleth unreturned veridities, amid her rocking grasses the herb trinity shams lowliness. Sky up is of evergrey. Thus too for donkey's years, since the bouts of he-bear and hairy-man, the cornflowers have been staying at Ballymun, the dust-rose has choosed out Goatstown's hedges, tulips have pressed gather them by sweet rush town land of twine lights, the white thorn and the red thorn have fairy-gayed the my valleys of Knockmaroon, and though for rings round them during a chiliad of perihili gangs, the formorians have brittled the two of the Danes. These Paxilian buttonholes have quadrilled across the centuries and whiffed now waft to as fresh and made of all smiles as on the eve of Kilal Ho. Thus nature renews herself each spring, but the revolving years bring man no second spring, no renewal of organs. Round Shem too the night in ever nearing circles weaves its shade. Now a standing muffin stuffenix, he tries as usual to take his meal off the national colours, green, white and orange, in the shape of watercress, bread and butter. Breath and bother and watercourse. Then breath, more bother and more watercourse. Then no breath, no bother, but water, water, worms. And Shem shall have shone. That's what these muffin stuffing eggs portend but he never consults a doctor for the ulcer which he himself diagnoses. Why was that man for he's doing her wrong? Look where he looks, how he's nuts in his entrails. Mookery mooks, it's a grip of his gripes. The way to dusty death is being signposted, though dev do a spart. To borrow and to burrow and to borrow, for a burning wood is come to dance inane. Glamours hath moidered leave, and herefore cold oars must leap no more, like breath. Must leap no more. He's on his way out, just like the Liffey, just at the parting of the tides. For all his faults, he's passing out. He'll slip away before they're up. They'll never see, nor know, nor miss me. At Flumturn Cemetery yesterday morning, the long-time mayor of this big, beautiful, rich, and extremely hospitable city, her Dr. Emil Lontold, dedicated a fine statue of James Joyce. There were wreaths there from admirers and friends, including a huge and colourful one from the city of Zurich, in green, white and yellow for Ireland and blue and white for Zurich, and also, by a typical Joycean coincidence, for Greece. The same colours, blue and white, and the first edition of Ulysses was, by Joyce's command, bound in those colours. There were professors and students from all parts of the known globe. Joyce's best biographer, Richard Ellman, was there, and Professor Thomas Connolly, who was coming to Joyce's old college in Dublin to hold seminars in Joyce studies next year. He's a professor at Buffalo, and he told me that if you see blood streaming from the face of a Joyce man, you can suspect the claws of another Joyce man. Joyce's son, George, was there, now exactly the same weight, age, 59, 
and height as Joyce when he died here in 1941. And, as we say in Ireland, the spit of the old da. So was his son, Stephen, who was on his way to Senegal to work for United Nations. In the afternoon, the city gave us a splendid lunch in their beautiful 1708 house, surrounded by gardens and sparkling fountains. Later in the evening, John Garvin gave the lecture which you've heard part of, and in the evening there was a kind of Finnegan's Wake at the university, with Professor Heinrich Strauman recalling his first meeting with Joyce in 1940, Dr. Lontold again, witty, aged and learned, Professor Elman, and there were songs and Joyce readings. But I have here with me in the studio Fritz Sen, a dedicated Joyce man and the editor of the occasional Awake News Litter. And I've also Milton Hebold, the sculptor of um, America, now of Rome, who was commissioned by Lee Nordness of New York to uh, sculpt this uh, Joyce portrait in sculpture. Now, Fritz Sen uh, has a scholarship. He's doing a research into Finnegan's Wake. And I'd like to ask you, uh, Herr Sen, how yesterday's magnificent Bloomsday came about. For 25 years, Joyce has been buried in a little quiet, secluded grave in Flaunton Cemetery. Many people thought that this little grave did not do justice to Joyce's significance as a writer. Moreover, legally, a grave plot may be moved after 25 years if the space is required. So the city council decided to erect a monument if this could be done. It so happened that an American Joyson from New York, Mr. Lee Nordness, had taken an initiative independently. He had seen the Zurich grave and was disappointed with it, and he decided to do something about it. And he had approached a sculptor whom he admired, Milton Hebold in Rome, who, as it turned out, was also a devoted Joycean and was ready to undertake a sculpture made in bronze. The family of James Joyce had to be asked for approval, and Mr. George Joyce approved of the models, and things went ahead with some red tape involved, as it had to be, until, finally, tomorrow, a wonderful bronze statue of James Joyce sitting in a typical pose could be dedicated. And was highly successfully, and a great day it was, and I think a credit to you and to everybody from the city of Zurich and to all concerned, and uh, no blood flowed and no claws were on view. Uh, Mr. Hebold, will you tell us, please, how you worked on the Joyce statue? Well, of course, I had a very good idea of what uh, James Joyce looked like, or at least I thought I did until I started to work. Naturally, I had to use photographs. Had I but known that Mr. George Joyce bore such a close resemblance, I possibly could have used him as a model. Nevertheless, I started by making many drawings and finally arrived at a uh, posture, which ultimately is the uh, developed into the piece which we see at the Flunkturn Cemetery now. From the small model, I then made two or three portrait studies, quite large, in clay, in which I 
put very carefully all the features and uh, <clears throat> an amalgamation of joys based upon uh, the photographs which I had at my disposal. From this, I then proceeded to the large statue, which took me five or six months to uh, prepare before it went into the uh, different materials of uh, plaster, wax, and finally bronze. I worked on each one of these stages of the work. Uh, even to the extent of uh, chiseling the bronze, I found, for instance, later on, the two rings on that Joyce habitually wore were missing from my statue, and I carved these into the bronze. The same is true with many of the features on his face. <clears throat> his eyeglasses, of course, presented the greatest problem. There are many ways to do this in sculpture, and the way which I chose uh, showed perhaps strongest of all, how important they were to his personality, the heavy, thick glass. Which are, of course, part and portion of Joyce, and without them it would be not be James Joyce. Thank you, Mr. Ewald. Thank you very much.